Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up to my scully. I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity. Is the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. We have a packed captain's table for you tonight, along with myself, Alex Shaw, and my first officer, Sharon. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Mr. Sharon. Uh, we have, he calls Savick Mr. Savick, doesn't he? <laughs> And no one ever remarks on that. I think that is a naval formality, isn't it? It's a U.S. Well, they, naval they, tradition, yeah. I yeah. was going to say, they do it in uh, BSG, don't they? Call everybody sir. Mister, yeah. I think they do it in Voyager. Janeway has to insist on being called ma'am, if I remember right. No, she yeah. calls insists on being called captain because they couldn't figure it out. Gotcha. Ah. See, no one ever called my shepherd Mr. Shepherd. We also have Chief Engineer Brendan Agu of the Day One podcast. I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. <laughs> A first-timer on our show, Ensign Karu Nagisa of the Sequentially Yours YouTube series. Coordinates locked in. On my mark. Mark. <laughs> Wichter, Wichter. Oh, God. Okay, just so you guys know, anytime anyone mentions Chekhov, I'm going to feel bad. So, oh, me too. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a bit, because the last time we were talking about Star Trek, we had two more <laughs> crew than we do now. <sighs> two... Pretty serious losses. Yeah. And from the Anfield Index Movie Night podcast, I guess Chief Medical Officer, Joe Simpson. <laughs> Thanks for having me aboard. Uh, let's hope we all live long and prosper. It's worse than that. He's dead, Joe. Uh, <laughs> uh, this was originally recorded as a roundtable on both Wrath of Khan and Into Darkness, but the conversation spiraled into three hours. So I have split this into two shows, one on each movie. So, Into Darkness will follow, and then a show on Star Trek Beyond the week after. He tasks me. He tasks me, and I shall have him. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia, and round the Antares maelstrom, and round Perdition's flames before I give him up.
this starts in the Kobayashi Maru, but I think part of what really resonates with Wrath of Khan for a lot of people, especially who grew up on Star Trek, is that Wrath of Khan is about being a Star Trek fan who grew up with the original series. It's about not being sure where things are going. It's about not being sure who's going to still be around. The original movie that came out in 78 or 79, it was, yeah, it made money, but it wasn't a big watershed moment. It wasn't critically beloved and it was very expensive. And so Wrath of Khan was the studio trying to figure out what they were going to do and how they were going to approach the franchise going forward. And the entirety of Wrath of Khan is kind of addressing that. It's it's about being old and having seen things and not being sure what your place is anymore. And the franchise wasn't sure where it was going to go. And so that, I think, really hit people um, in a big way, especially in 82. And that the Kobayashi Maru starts with killing off the entire crew that you know, and you have no idea where Captain Kirk is. So it just catches the audience completely by surprise. And so just from minute one, you're very invested in what's going on. Nice. I think part of what works about it is that nobody told Nicholas Meyer that this was a sequel in a franchise for a show that hadn't been on TV for 13 years or more. He came at it as a serious project. He came at it as a serious film project and a serious directing project, considering I think he had one credit, one directing credit to his name Mm -hmm. when they put him on charge of this. And from the very first scene, the first thing you do is he shows us all of these characters and then there's the surprise Savick sitting in the captain's chair and it works. It works really well to introduce us back into where we are and who we're looking at, but tell us that something new is about to happen. He also didn't especially like Star Trek. Similarly to Abrams, he he didn't have the same investment that, say, Gene Roddenberry did. In mm-hmm. fact, Roddenberry was mad about a lot of the things that Nicholas Mayer did, like the uniforms that are very military in Wrath of Khan going forward. Roddenberry did not like that. Um, it's a very like you mentioned, Alex, it being a submarine picture. And if you look at Das Boot, Crimson Tide, Red October, mm-hmm. they do feel very similar to Wrath of Khan. And the military uniforms kind of help that submarine movie feeling. But I think it still manages to be about something more cerebral than just being, you know, just a, a submarine action movie because it does have the the new life and the the ideas of what you can gain and lose even as you're looking down the barrel of 50. When I watch Wrath of Khan, I become a bit of a shot geek in the sense that I love so many of the specific just shots that uh, Meyer chose. My favorite in that opening scene is the introduction of Kirk, where he had that bright light behind him. Mm-hmm. They are, he is absolutely trying to make this seem as epic as possible in a very small space. I think what it, it, it did really well was it managed to cater to the the hardcore fans and the newer fans like myself in a way that didn't patronize either group mm. and and some and, and in a really economical way so like very easily told the newer fans so much about who these characters actually were in a way as i say that is sort of exciting as well it makes you want to see more of these characters but at the same time, it's very easy when doing that to maybe alienate the people who know them so well. But I think it was done in a way where how they did it was the type of things that the people who did know them so well loved it too. So it, it managed to do both both things at the same time, really. Satisfied mm-hmm. both groups. The jump 
between the the Star Trek the Motion Picture and Wrath of Khan is the the, the characterization that is able to take place and how much more you learn about the characters by virtue of not just what happens to them. Um, <coughs> Star Trek the Motion Picture is very plot heavy, but by how they respond to those events. And if you think about it, that's what the Kobayashi Maru is all about. And starting with that kind of sets out their stall on what they're intending to do here. The point of the Kobayashi Maru is to reveal how your trainees are going to react when they're put in that situation where they can't win, where they're put in a situation where they're going to have to uh, test their resolve in the face of certain failure are they and obviously we talked about this briefly um when we were reviewing the first new trek film are they going to um sort of give up after a few tries when they realize that their ideas aren't getting them anywhere fall apart and let the crew dissolve around them in which case probably not really offer some material mm-hmm. or are they going to keep responding with an attempt at a solution for every new spanner in the works that the test throws at them because that's the purpose of it that's what it's there for is basically will they keep going when it becomes obvious that whatever they do something else will be thrown up another obstacle another point of frustration um will they keep going will they keep pushing on and that's where not just Wrath of Khan goes, but I think that's that's where they were kind of taking the uh, the the series. And I I personally, I mean, I've I've said this before. Search for Spock is my favourite original Star Trek movie. Um, and but I I think having now seen Wrath of Khan again recently, they they make a very solid pair for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would necessarily want to take them as separate films. I I find the whole story, the loss and um, rediscovery of Spock to be an incredible one yeah. Um, but yeah the, the you start with the revealing of how people react in the face of, of certain destruction and that's where the film then goes as a whole that's what they're telling you, this is who these characters are this is how they will respond um, and here's that no win situation that we teased at the beginning um, and I love the parallels as well that you, you've been talking about in terms of it being a, a submarine film, um, especially if you think about the Moby Dick references and the, the ideas of um, in space, you are effectively lost, well, not necessarily lost, but you are at sea, you are alone in that great expanse where you're surrounded by everything. You are entirely isolated. You've got at your disposal what you've got in that tin can and nothing else. So is Kirk um, Khan's white whale? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. He's basically saying, thou damned whale, thus I give up a spear, you know, when he's trying to activate Genesis. Khan is very much Moby dicking the crap out of the Enterprise at the very end of the film. Captain A having. And in in a way, it's actually kind of sad, considering that Khan has spent what, 15 years at this point, doing nothing but thinking about Kirk, and Kirk has literally forgotten about him. Ooh. I mean, can you imagine if you if you have, if in your head you have a nemesis, 
and that nemesis doesn't even remember that you exist. It's been so long. I do slightly disagree. I think Khan's done a fair few bench presses in the time. Because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But he probably didn't have much else to do, did he? But I think that's, an... obviously, I know we'll talk about Into Darkness later, but I think that's an interesting difference in terms of, obviously, Khan in this has got so much, you know, desire for vengeance. And, and I think, Obviously, he's got so, in so many ways, he's so superior, and it's only really that, and maybe obviously arrogance, that gives Kirk and the Enterprise any chance against them. And it, it's mm. such an interesting dynamic, that, isn't it? That that, that vengeance is obviously his, his great weakness. Also, the familiarity with the, the uh, spacecraft that they're using, that Kirk yeah. uh, eventually manages to, to use that. I mean, ultimately, Good. Khan is. Is is brilliant technologically, but he isn't experienced in in this kind of starship. He's been uh, frozen since the nineteen nineties, and uh, he's been then marooned on a planet and getting to know you know roughly. I mean, where did, how, what did they set him down with a shuttle, or did they put the botany they bay down on the planet? They put the botany bay on the planet. Oh, there you go then. Yeah, so he you know he's still used to the workings of a craft from the nineteen nineties, which it was. And uh, then um, he, you know, jumps on on the what's the name of the other um, Starfleet ship? Reliant. I want to say the Reliant. Reliant. Yeah. Reliant uh, so he has to learn how to use that really quickly. Which, I mean, honestly, uh, well, in space seat, he read all the documentation, so yeah. he already knew how to do that. Which speaks to how incredibly gifted he is at being able to pick stuff up and run with it. Because otherwise, he shouldn't have a chance against an experienced Star- uh, Starfleet captain and Starfleet crew. Because these other guys are running around the place. That, that see here's the thing none of them ever seem to exhibit the kind of you know like like superhuman abilities that that he does in terms of yeah. like you know brain and and uh, and body it's all him and a about, bunch of Chippendale dancers yeah and they, <laughs> literally yeah they all look like he-man God, you still remember admiral i cannot help but be touched i of course remember you what is the meaning of this attack where is the crew of the reliant Surely I have made my meaning plain. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. I've deprived your ship of power, and when I swing around, I mean to deprive you of your life. But I wanted you to know first who it was who had beaten you. Come. If it's me you want, I'll have myself beamed aboard. Spare my crew. I make you a counter-proposal. I'll agree to your terms if, if, in addition to yourself, you hand over to me all data and material regarding the project called Genesis. Genesis? What's that? Don't insult my intelligence, Kirk. Give me some time to recall the data on our computers. I give you 60 seconds, Admiral. the bridge. At least we know he doesn't have Genesis. Keep nodding as though I'm still giving orders. But Savick, punch up the data charts of Reliance Command Console. Reliance Command? Hurry. 45 seconds. The prefix code, it's all we've got. Charts up, sir. Admiral, we're finding it. Admiral, 
please. Please, you've got to give us time. The, the bridge is smashed. The computer's inoperative. Time is a luxury you don't have, Admiral. Admiral, it's coming through now, Com. Reliance prefix number is 16309. I don't understand. You have to learn why things work on a starship. Each ship has its own combination code to prevent an enemy from doing what we're attempting. Using our console to order Reliant to lower her shield. Assuming he hasn't changed the combination, he's quite intelligent. Fifteen seconds, Admiral. Khan, how do we know you'll keep your word? Oh, I've given you no word to keep, Admiral. In my judgment, you simply have no alternative. I see your point. Stand by to receive our transmission. Soon, lock the phasers on target and await my command. Phasers locked. Time's up, Admiral. Here it comes. Now, Mr. Sir, our shields are dropping. Raise them! I can't! Where's the override? The override! Fire! Fire! But it's interesting, though. I think one of them, you, you, you're totally right, but one of them that I think it's Joachim, he he actually, because he doesn't have that desire for vengeance, he mm. is giving him some wise advice at times. Yeah, yeah. Why, we don't have to do this. We, you know, we, we, we've we won in a way. We can go and live our lives wherever, or we don't have to enter that nebula. Mm. But he's just disregarding it, isn't he? Because he's got that desire for, you know, to to get Kirk. And Khan doesn't want to just get Kurt. It's much better than that. <laughs> I've hurt you. He just, he really wants, like, like you mentioned that he, he, he hates Kirk from afar and Kirk doesn't even remember him. He wants Kirk to hate him as much as he hates Kirk. So when Kirk goes, <gasps> Khan! He's like, yes! Music to my ears! But if you think about it, that's, that's the, he's playing out the inverse of the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. The Kobayashi Maru test is a, is a no-win scenario. Khan effectively has a no-lose scenario. Mm. It's his own thirst for vengeance and the overreach that keeps him coming and coming and coming. Even when he's effectively won, mm. all he's got to do at that point is turn around and walk away. But he can't. And this is where the from hell's heart type stab at the mm. becomes his... Uh, his tragic flaw that's his undoing mm. is that overreaching and that determination to to seal the vengeance and see the end of this um which which causes his own downfall and speaking of the moby dick references by the way i believe if i remember rightly um when you see kirk's bookshelf at the beginning he has a copy of moby dick on there he does okay and that's so does Khan. then yeah oh Khan nice. definitely does nice yeah Khan has that he has king lear he has basically all the major paradise tragedies lost. in literature i think he has paradise lost as well and he does he yeah references that that's one of uh, my favorite quotes better to reign in hell than serve in heaven <laughs> mm-hmm 
Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting on the literary side is that uh, the movie, large, you know, just after the Kobayashi Maru bits, it opens with the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities and then closes with the closing lines of A Tale of Two Cities. Mm. And we've got, it's just, there are just so many literary references, specifically ones dealing with dichotomies between two opposing forces or two equal forces that are placed in opposition to one another. Mm. And this is part of what I think makes this film so much bigger than the motion picture because it's it's so full of almost like references that if you if you kind of visualize them as a wikipedia page if you have knowledge of those stories and those myths and and what's being woven into it you can kind of you click on each of those references and it expands that character mm. right they they admire this literary fictional person therefore here's what we can infer about their character and how they see the world um you know this is this is something that they hold dear and so we can see that their life's path is potentially going to go off in this direction mm. and it, it makes the universe suddenly that much bigger because you've expanded it by way more than you can fit into that just over two hour slot. They're also showing how Kirk and Khan could basically switch places in a lot of parts of the film and depending on their reactions they would basically go down the same paths. It's just that their choices are, are so different um, because they are both in very similar parts of their lives um, but when you look at the broader scheme of things even though Kirk is talking about how he feels old and how he, he feels like he's losing his place in the world if you look at the two characters of Kirk and Khan, Kirk has been gaining a lot of things since the events of Spacey. You know, Khan is aghast that he is an admiral. He almost finds that insulting. He's like, admiral? And whereas Khan has just been losing things, he lost his wife, he lost the, the safety of his world, and he just feels that he is that he's been losing at the same time that Kirk has been gaining. And, you know, at the very end of the movie, Khan is alone on a dead ship with a dead crew. And Kirk, he does lose a friend. But when he says goodbye to his friend, he is literally surrounded by everyone else that is important to him. And he, you know, ends that particular beat by gaining the respect of his son. And suddenly on the call, we've just had beamed aboard the bridge, science officer Aaron Lecluse of the Magic the Gathering Card Advantage podcast. Hello, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. And why not? Because there was no way to win. A no-win situation is a possibility every commander may face. Has that never occurred to you? No, sir. It is not. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? As I indicated, Admiral, that thought had not occurred to me. Well, now you have something new to think about. The Kobayashi Maru, sir. Are you asking me for playing out that scenario now? On the test, sir. Will you tell me what you did? I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Savick feels like a character that kind of was going to go somewhere, but then they dropped her. She was supposed to be the replacement for Spock. Um, oh, yeah? Because, uh, what's up? because Leonard Nimoy didn't want to do this anymore. So originally, uh, Savick was Mr. Wick, I believe, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And basically, as the script kept changing and changing, 
it turned into Mr. Savick, and then it turned into a woman, I think the third or fourth pass. And then finally, uh, Nick Myers just took all of the scripts and in 12 days rewrote the whole thing himself. Jesus. He got no credit. Yeah, no, he's no on credit. credit. For it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's because they didn't have time to write him a contract. So he just said, we need to make a movie and none of these scripts are any good. So he got Harv Bennett over and said, bring over all the scripts and rewrote the whole thing himself. That is pretty impressive. Did you say 12 days? 12 days. Wow. Otherwise, ILM wouldn't have had time to do the gra- the uh, computer graphics. Wow. I think what, what what's even, obviously, that is amazingly impressive. But what he did as well was, if I, if I recall correctly, he, he took the best bits from all those scripts mm. and brought them together. And That's it, why it feels I heard about, sodic, but also yeah, why it's of high quality. Yeah. Yeah, but bringing it together in that way where it works, you would normally think it'd be it'd be really disjointed. But Clusterfuck, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in such a short um, period, what a talent. That's what you get if you was, get a bunch of scripts and one guy with vision as opposed to a bunch of writers and a bunch of ideas all throwing them into one horrible script, Independence Day Revolution. A bunch of writers <laughs> and a lot of beer and pizza. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, think- yeah, and he uh, he also rewrote all of the dialogue though because he said I ha- this has to be in my voice, otherwise I'm not going to be able to direct it properly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he took that concepts, but all the dialogue is his. And that's cut- why it sounds better than Star Wars. Yeah, that's also why he wrote <laughs> four and six, the other two, uh, you know, really good ones. I uh, Sharon and still really. Uh, do you guys like Search for Spock? Sharon does. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. consider Absolutely. this Search for Spock and Voyage Home to be basically a trilogy, and I yeah. them all for different reasons. I saw a Blu-ray box set with just those three together, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess that yeah. kind of does work. It I does make a pretty good story. Voyage, Voyage Home, but... Uh... I, I, I do wonder what we're going to do about the other movies, because I, I I think I will fall asleep just thinking about the motion picture, but I do completely understand <laughs> that it, it does have some great strengths to it. It's just motion that, picture is so is disappointing to watch because I adore Robert Wise as a director. I love the haunting. Of the and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean I, I love the haunting. West Side Story is one of my favorites. Um, Day the Earth Stood Still. All all that's I love his work, but man, I just can't watch the motion picture. Mm. It's, it's so exemplified sad. by that slow reveal of the Enterprise, isn't it? Yeah, all, all 20 minutes of it, 30 minutes, I don't know. It felt like an hour Footage of which was reused in Wrath of Khan, was it not? Yeah, the, possible, the exterior, yeah. yeah, the exterior space dock shots mm-hmm. in oh, Wrath yeah, of Khan, right. I believe, are just lifted just from uh, the original, lot, from the motion picture. That's right, because they used a lot of the leftover um, special effects shots from motion picture, because, you know, they paid for them, so. Yeah, as well. <laughs> And not enough people saw the motion picture, so you might as well make sure that everyone does. Uh, also, yeah, didn't they use the, the good bits. Didn't they use the, the, the Klingon warbird exploding yeah. in Star Trek VI in Generations as well? They sure did. Yeah. Yes, they did. Same one. Yeah. I, see, I don't mind reusing shots. I mean, Michael Bay does it, so why the hell shouldn't these guys? <laughs> yes, because if Michael Bay does something, that's expensive. It's a bit questionable when you start reusing the shots in the same movie, though. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, you give us an hour or so to get over them, even if we're marathoning the films. And think... Monet reused his canvases. True. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've I've reused bits and sound effects within New Century. So. Well, yeah. doesn't um, I think James Horner reuses bits of his Krull score as well, doesn't he? Or uh, if, if he doesn't, it's very very similar at, at times. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you listen to the da 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 that is in Willow and in every James Horner score, <laughs> it's in Avatar. Avatar. Yeah. I, I know that da 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 da. 
Yeah. And Danny Elfman's basically got one riff. Yeah. Oh, no, that's that's unfair. Danny Elfman's <laughs> had a, a musical growth curve, which is, is kind of like a hill now currently descending. <laughs> did it did just... he get Oingo Boingo? Just, just no. <laughs> I'd say his last truly great score was actually Big Fish. No one ever thinks about that. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely, uh, unusual uh, for him. But uh, actually, I think I may have mentioned this one before, possibly on the Aliens show. Jerry Goldsmith did the first Star Trek and Alien, uh, and James Horner did Aliens and in, uh, Into Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> the remake of Into Darkness, uh, also known as Wrath of Khan. So, and a lot of his Wrath of Khan score got reused for Aliens because of tightness for time. Mm, that makes and, sense. And uh, his, his Wrath of Khan score, though, uh, it, there are parts of it that don't quite match up with how dire things in the you yeah, know I did mention that uh, in, in my essay, yeah. As, as you say. Um, however, there there's just a lot of it that really does feel... It, it feels energetic and hopeful which is one of those things that I find is interesting about, well, interesting, no, not interesting. Interesting, thank you. Uh, one of those things that, that I find compelling about Wrath of Khan is that it can go to some really dark places, but it is ultimately so uplifting, and the score that starts when it's doing the overture at the beginning during the credit sequence kind of makes that mission statement. It's saying that we are going to be more adventurous and more fun and less plotting. So even All when you get horns. to the... There's a lot of horns. Yeah, it's very it's a very horny score. Oh, how do you get to the end of this film with what happens at the end of this film and have everyone leaving the f- cinema feeling pleased, as opposed to no? Well, because it feels earned, and even though it's the death of a beloved character, I mean they they don't quite do what Star Trek Into Darkness does, where they immediately walk mm. it back, mm. but they give you just a little bit of a. But wait a minute, maybe. Genesis is life from death, so maybe eventually one day, and then they show you Spock's, you know, capsule on on the Genesis planet. Yeah, and they they set stuff up too. I'm wondering what um, they were going to do with the remember where uh, with uh, just before he walked the into the thing. thing yeah. yeah, the mind melt thing, and the fact that the, his final death scene is framed like a Pieta with him as Christ. Yeah. If you look at the framing, it's it's basically he's Jesus and Kirk is the Virgin Mary, just the way it's framed. Ah. I hadn't considered that. That's a good catch. The <laughs> biting irony of Kirk being compared with a virgin here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a way, Sorry, his just innocence to... is finally lost, right? Yeah, true. Mm. Yeah. Good point. Not certainly his naivety and the belief that there is that he can escape a no-win scenario with without being scathed. Yeah. He's lost a whole bunch of red shirts before, but he's never lost somebody that close. And also there's an element of personal responsibility in the sense that it was he, Kirk, that um, uh, Khan was ultimately pursuing. Spock, great though his sacrifice is, is effectively collateral damage at this Mm. point. And I think it really is sort of a battle between these two titans and Spock got caught in the middle. Mm, yeah. Although less caught and more willingly stepped forward. Fair. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Obviously, in this, um, Savak was making a point about what Kirk should do mm. when the Reliant was approaching, and I think it was Spock combined with Kirk who both ignored her, and Spock sort of told her not to say it, and Kirk obviously knew what she was going to say and ignored it. Mm. So that was a really big error, complacency maybe I don't know what by him. So I think that even added. 
added even more responsibility to it that he'd, he'd made that sort of that error initially. Somehow, uh, somehow he didn't. Somehow he not only forgot to check on Khan, but they no, they didn't notice that a planet exploded. Like they went to this theoretically mapped star system and somehow forgot to check if all the planets were there. <laughs> that is something that they missed. I don't know how that happened. That's a good point, actually. I did think of that at the time. So, like, well, you thought this was the planet next to it. What did you think had happened to the planet that should have been? next to it can you count up to five <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. and did it not occur to Chekhov to say at any point oh actually the one next to this is where we left somebody I might just pop in and say hi <laughs> <laughs> I mean you think also that like Starfleet would have notes on the planets like you know this one's rich in iridium this one's got a lot of element zero this one's got a con on it <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, no one got that note. Right? <laughs> I, I Did think anybody get my memo? We lost the atlas. <laughs> I think the implication from Space Seed was that Kirk was going to lie on his report and say, oh, yeah, Takan totally died and stuff. Um, I think that was the implication because I just rewatched Space Seed. I have no idea exactly what the details were, but I'm guessing maybe I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt here. I could be just being nice. Uh so uh, on on that subject of SETI Alpha five versus six uh, that, that we're having here, so I, I'm I'm an astrophysicist what a by fascinating trade. Fascinating way to start a conversation. So <laughs> on the subject of mm, SETI Alpha five versus six. <laughs> well, I, I am a Star Trek nerd. I established that. <laughs> oh, good. good. Uh, but so so I am an astrophysicist by trade. Uh, it's in fact why I'm late to the show. I do apologize for that. But I'm I'm currently at a radio telescope in the wilds of West Virginia, and finding a stable place for an internet connection was a little tricky because they don't allow Wi-Fi here. It's a very so, humble brag. It sounds like a humble it's, brag. It, it's a tiny bit of a humble brag. It's kind of a really cool excuse, is how oh, I like to think it. Is, yeah. it. I, I thought it was just going to be the fact that I said 8 p.m. GMT and we're in British summertime. Yeah, that's actually what did it, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sorry. And, and, the, uh, on time to your Star Trek podcast, I was doing vital NASA work. <laughs> sorry, carry on. <laughs> Anyway, on the on the five versus six subject, so I've often wondered, and I, I know I'm way too much of a nerd for this, but I really have wondered how do they decide where what planet is what in any given system? Because let's say you warp into a, a, a star system and it's got a bunch of planets, how do you know which one's which? Yeah, because you just arrived. Distance Space, from the sun. Uh, I right, was well, space say, is I was huge. So how are you measuring that? If, Again. If you're Looking at a solar system, yeah. the the way I've always assumed it's done is that the the star at the centre of that system is what gives it its name, and right, then you absolutely. name each planet as you're moving out. So in this particular uh, solar system, for example, whatever name you want to give our sun, solar or whatever, sol, um, sol then, S O L, yeah, S O L. Okay, so in the sol system, if you were doing it. Numerical naming system: Mercury would be Sol one, Venus would be Sol two, Earth would be Sol three, and so on. Right, but uh, okay. So let's say I warp into the system, and I'm where I think SETI Alpha six should be. Mm -hmm. At best, I'm seeing one planet, right? Because everything else is so far away in the system. It's not like I can just go there and count them. Mm -hmm. So I I warp in to where roughly six ought to be. There happens to be a planet. I'm like, oh, it must obviously be SETI Alpha six. It's a little bit off from where I thought it would be, but eh close enough we were here once like 15 years ago somebody scribbled a note on the back of a napkin and mailed it to us <laughs> said Khan's totally dead we it swear it feels like they'd at least take a photo of it and load that into the database yeah I go, think it's they a should. green one or a brown one you know 
Right. Well, I mean, all planets are essentially, you know, mono temperature. So sure. Yeah. No, no. I'm sorry. That's Star Wars. Yes. My yeah. bad. One yeah. topographical feature per planet. Thank you very much. That's <laughs> Um, there was also one other thing I wanted to revisit because uh, I, I wasn't here during the, the, the Kobayashi Maru discussion, mm. uh, which I, I can't wait to hear. So I'll be you down You failed there. the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> as soon as it happens. Uh, well, you couldn't win it unless you cheat. And sure. I was obviously not going to do that. So. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Change the conditions of the test, please. Oh, <laughs> I, I changed it to apparently 9 p.m. Uh, GMT or no, British <laughs> summertime. Um <laughs> One of the interesting points, excuse me, I used the word, my apologies, but no, no, I think this it's one might actually... It's not the first time someone said that in this episode. One of the trivial points, because mm. uh, this is true, just trivia, there were a lot of rumors circulating before uh, Wrath of Khan came out that Spock was going to die in Wrath of Khan. In fact, supposedly someone on the production staff leaked it during a convention appearance. And so uh, I've, I've never really known if it was purposeful that they made a point of killing off so many characters killing quote unquote so many characters at the very beginning of this film to throw people off of the idea that oh yeah Spock really is going to die we'll just get that out of the way in the first 10 minutes there he is he's dead now he's alive again let's carry on with film they actually got uh, death threats for that so that's not this is not a new thing going yeah. at least back to Wrath of Khan people were getting death threats of you kill Spock we kill you I'm not kidding the production the team only that show, which here is, being uh, that this was Leonard Nimoy's insistence. Didn't he say he'd only come back if they killed off the character? Yeah. 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 And so also, his I'm not Spock phase. Yeah. yeah. If <laughs> you kill Spock, I will kill you. It's the Vulcan way. <laughs> <laughs> we are entirely, entirely emotionally based and uh, slave to our sudden snap decisions. That's what Vulcans do. You idiots. <laughs> nice to know fans have been giant dickwads for a long, long yeah. time. So uh, it's just a new thing. Th there are yes. two kinds of people in this world. People who send death threats, people who don't. If you send death threats, you're a douchebag immediately. Yes. Just that's your that's your in, uh, that's your, it's your defining point. quality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's my Just to go briefly back to we were talking about um Savik and and her role and how it comes into mm. to this film but i actually see her as part of kind of the there's a, a trilogy of characters or a trio of characters if you like um who kind of represent the next generation moving forward in this mm. um, you've got sulu's daughter who has a very brief appearance um, in generations that's generations yeah she turns up and goes oh i'm sulu's daughter and, and uh <laughs> uh kurt goes Oh, it's been a long time, <laughs> or something to that effect. And basically, he's just like he's amazed at how old he was, he is because the last time he remembers her, she's very very short. Carry on. Uh, okay, no, in that case, backtrack. I sorry, I got confused because we saw Wrath of Khan generations in quick succession. We have been watching them in a weird order. Mm. Yes, ah. indeed. Okay, in that case, scrap that point. I was going to say something about her and Savik and David kind of being the next generation of the original characters, but yeah. Well, they yeah, sort of are, and, yeah. and the movie almost sets sets things up for that because it clears Spock off the table, and it's like Savik is still there, still part of the crew. But then with the search for Spock, partly because, you know, I, I guess Wrath of Khan was very successful, 
they decided to walk it back a little bit. And of course, some characters just don't make it out of the search for Spock and mm. Spock comes back and it's more about the status quo. Wrath of Khan does feel like it could be going forward with a new generation of characters starting to take over, mm. especially because the Kobayashi Maru starts with someone else in the captain's chair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, and you certainly have uh, Savik as if she's not Spock's actual daughter, she is in a, uh, in a kind of academic sense, his, uh, his, progeny if you like he his surrogate daughter mm. yeah i mean he's she's clearly a, a very close student of his um and i believe he's put her forward for the um for the test so they were actually in, ending up being two passing of the torch movies we got uh um generations where uh kirk gives picard the thumbs up and then star trek 11 where uh spock gives who wouldn't even be in generations uh gives young kirk the thumbs up and says you know fosters on full off you guys go to do your new thing it is probably worth mentioning right now because of leonard nimoy's a, you know, extremely good performance in wrath of khan uh that we lost him in the uh, time between the when we reviewed the uh the first new star trek and uh, now with into darkness and um he lived long he prospered that doesn't make it any less of a tragedy. It doesn't make uh, uh, it any less painful and poignant whenever I watch any of his performances now. And I am already getting, um, you know, choked up watching Shatner perform. Because I'm like, I know what you're going to do, 2016. I fucking know what you're going to do, 2016. Uh-huh. No, no, don't. It's going to. Okay. You've got to make your peace with the fact that 2016 will take away everyone that you love. Uh, but um, but yeah, the uh, uh, Nimoy's performance in this is stellar. And um, like I said, when he stands up in the uh, uh, chamber at the end, uh, and he's in, in dreadful pain, his skin's melting off. The way he um, reacts to the uh, uh, transparent aluminium when he's up against it uh, for, with Jim, he's not focusing on him. It's possible that he is now blind. It's when he straightens his uniform that it's you've just got this little like that little nod towards dignity that the character always had um that that he you know can come forward from that and that's it's reassuring that he is able to go out like that and um if this had been leonard nimoy's last star trek performance it's possible this film would be even better it certainly yeah. feels even uh, even emotionally weightier since Nimoy's passing. I've mm. I've always felt that the the Spock's death and Wrath of Khan works very well. Yeah. But it it certainly has a much deeper emotional resonance now. Mm. Spock. Ship. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Solution. Spock. 
and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. So much, and it's not—it's not just Leonard Nimoy. I think part of it was also Nicholas Meyer was really good at bringing a performance out of characters. This is also possibly Shatner's one of his best performances ever. There's so many subtle things that yeah, yeah. he does in contrast to the over-the-top caricature that people have of him. Yeah. But you know, just his facial expressions when he drinks the Romulan ale at the beginning, or the way that he allows his voice to catch just a little bit when he's saying uh, Spock's eulogy. Or just He's saying, sure. no, as Spock goes, it's uh, very rained back. He could be hammering on the glass, glass and going, no! But it's just this quiet, humble moment. Yeah, it's, now, it, when he was restrained, it's great. I, yeah, well, I've, I've read that uh, a lot of that is Nicholas Meyer. Uh, he yeah. he pulled the performers back so much because I mean uh, Ricardo Montalban and uh, William Shatner. Montalban was reined in for this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, he has. Imagine the original take. <laughs> well, he is still a lot quieter than you would think, given that the movie is literally named after how pissed off the main mm. bad guy is. He does a lot of whispering and and soft speaking, even when he's got Chekhov held up in one hand. He's like. Mm. Tell me, <laughs> he's kind of rained back. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've heard similar things. I think uh, that I was reading something where it said it made me laugh. This line, like uh, where, where uh, Maya was uh, directing Monsalban, and he obviously must have done this take really well, like loads of dialogue, really well, but really, you know, too full on. You know, he didn't get a word wrong, but it was too much. Right. And and Nicholas Meyer said that he, he he sort of pulled him aside and said, you know, if you do it like that so early, you'll have nowhere else to go to show you're getting more angry sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm tempted to do a mobile impression, but it'd be so bad I won't. I don't but do it. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't. But I just I just remember the, the line that made me laugh was and picture this in Khan's voice as well was he says. So you in, you intend to direct me as if like it was a a, a, a shot that he was getting uh, that he was getting directed, you know what I mean? Yeah. But but he was really pleased, you know. He yeah. really welcomed it, you know. He uh, obviously a successful actor. I'm sure he could have, as we said, you know, second picture for Meyer as a director. I think mm. I'm sure he could have turned his nose up at it, but he took it on board, and I think it it, it really worked, didn't it? No really good actor will reject that kind of uh, help from a director to uh, to shape their performance. I mean, um, uh, th- there's a reason why McGee actually has a, a history of conflict on his sets. He's actually really not that fantastic at handling people. Whenever any, like, this is the film, like, Bill Murray and Lucy Liu would not talk to each other on the set of Charlie's Angels because it was so bitter between them. Uh, so Christian Bale had that freak out <laughs> on Terminator Salvation. And if you listen to um, McGee's pathetic bleating in the background of that screaming fit 
It's like, wow, you can't actually handle people. It's almost as if you can't direct. <laughs> so why do you? Why are you sitting in this chair? Get out, McGee. There's sweaters that need folding. <laughs> That's my punishment for every crap director. <laughs> and Jai Courtney. Um, but but yeah, no, ultimately, the, the, the idea of um, being able to take somebody so charismatic and so powerful and to be able to, uh, to tell them that there is a, a, a progression here of the character that, that is going to peak at some point. Um, especially if you don't... I mean, most movies are not shot in sequence. So it might be that it's like, well, no, no, okay, remember, this scene's actually earlier. Even though you've gone up to 11 already, just dial it back. Because otherwise it's going to be a very uneven performance. And um, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't direct more of the uh, Star Trek films. I mean, I, I, like... The, you did it, this in six. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Nimoy directed uh, Search for Spock, but that almost seems like, well, we, we got it really, really right with Wrath of Khan. I think... Um, Spock coming back was conditional on Nimoy being able to direct the third one. I don't know who gave Shatner the fifth one. I think Shatner had it. I could be wrong here, but I think Shatner, Shatner gave had Shatner the, clause. the fifth one. <laughs> Almost. I think he had a clause that sort of said, I forgot what it's called, but a clause that sort of said he had to mirror whatever Nimoy got. Oh my God. If he gets one, I get one. I'm sure I've read that somewhere. Spock gets a limo. Kirk gets a limo. It's a shame to really think about that because Shatner is, he is really dialed back in this. In fact, it would be really easy for them to do the, the dolly shot up, arms played, yelling, no, at when Spock dies. And yet he's, it's, it's quiet. It, mm, he's, mm. he's just sitting there with a haunted look on his face. And one of the reasons that his scream when he's screaming over the inter, the intercom at Khan, you know, oh, yeah. doing the Khan thing, I think it works because he is so reined in for so much of it, mm. and he he you, that bit is where he starts cracking a little bit because one of his friends just had an alien bug in his head. Someone else killed themselves in front yeah. of him, and he's just like, you just keep missing the target, mm. and he's he's kind of losing it. He's got nothing left. But at the end of the movie, he he doesn't try and top that, which would be very easy for even other directors to try and get their actor to do. Like, anyone who's ever directed Wolverine would have tried to have Wolverine do that. <sighs> I, yeah, if if in Wolverine 3, he does that crane shot, no! I'm making a YouTube compilation. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing about that, Khan, is that it cuts straight to the planet, just in space, very, you know, like, Khan! Like, he's screaming from it, but he's powerless. He cannot affect change. Doesn't matter what he's going to do there. Uh, so the fact that it was actually a, a cunning double bluff. Two yep. things. Uh, the first one is I actually have an alternate interpretation of that uh, that con moment for you, and mm. this is this is not my interpretation, but it's one that I've heard. Uh, that in that moment, the reason that Kirk is so over the top and so intense is because he's trying to put on a performance for Khan. Kirk knows his ship is being repaired even as he speaks. Yeah. Kirk knows that he has to keep Khan fixated on him and nothing else. So he has to lash out in this over-the-top way. And even that line where he screams Khan, uh, certainly the interpretation that most people give and the one that we're, we're giving here is uh, perfectly valid uh, and I think is a perfectly reasonable way to read it. But another way to read it is that that's a performance, mm. not, not by the actor but by the character. Mm. 
Oh, uh, which I found to be interesting. Interesting. Food for thought. Interesting. It's, yeah. well, no, we, we, we said earlier that, that, that Khan's been like ruminating on how much he hates Kirk for so many years. Kirk barely remembers him. And uh, effectively, Khan wants Kirk to hate him just as much. So that's food for him when Kirk's screaming. So I, I like that theory. I, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. I was just going to say, that's the way I see it, to be honest with you. I think it's like, obviously, he's performing almost the con job on, on Khan at the time. And con I, job. That, that, oh, no, no pun intended, honestly. It's a long con. <laughs> and I think that sort of sells it more, doesn't it? That he needs to make Khan feel he's won and that Kirk is totally, you know, totally vulnerable and helpless. And that sort of sells it so much more, his reaction like that. And I think that... That leaves Khan satisfied that, you know, I've won when when he obviously hasn't. Whereas if, if Kirk hadn't have shown him some sign of how badly defeated he was, obviously he's so intelligent there is a slim chance he might have been a bit more suspicious. But I think that sort of sells it even more that, you know, he's selling it to Khan that you've won, essentially. The fact that the super emotional guy screams and he's not really feeling it kind of makes the fact that the super logical guy in Into Darkness screams and he really does feel it at that point all the better to me. Yeah. Um, when Spock yeah. goes, Khan! He um, really means it because he can't, can't even hear him. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully disagree mm-hmm. there because the other point that I wanted to bring up is that uh, that that really quiet intense moment when Spock dies in Wrath of Khan and that performance that's turned in by uh, both Shatner and Nimoy in that moment and the weight of it emotionally, just everything you feel. I want you to just take that and just tuck it into the back of your mind for when we talk about a similar scene in Into Darkness. Ah, but and you just haven't listened compare... to my world-class essay explaining why that whole thing works perfectly. But uh, Oh, it better be a hell of an essay. It's a good essay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I convinced any of the, I don't know if I convinced any of these guys, but um, but maybe. no, I've got to say it was very good, but it was quite frustrating because every every good point I thought I was going to make was in it. <laughs> that's that was one of the things I was I was thinking when I, I I was writing. I was like, hang on, am I just like am I going to the buffet first before everyone else, <laughs> getting all the best sweets, loading my bowl up, and then going sitting back down again with a big bowl of sweets and going, okay, you guys can now go to the buffet. <laughs> like a complete we're all, twat. We're all, we're all reasonably intelligent people. We'll figure out something to say. We'll keep we'll keep it talking. Okay. Also, isn't this your podcast? Don't you have to edit this crap? I mean, true, at some true. point you get to take you know prerogative. But uh, I, I think I there is something. I like oh, to, to give you guys um, stuff to. That's why I was going to try and shut my mouth throughout this uh, this whole section. Oh. <laughs> Mission not accomplished. Well, I don't. I don't want to go onto Star Trek Into Darkness until we go into Star Trek Into Darkness. But I do think one of the things that J.J. Abrams both excels at and kind of trips up over is his ability to immediately make a uh, a a scene that has lots of emotion in it and is also very propulsive. But then there are also times when he has a lot of trouble really tying that to a a larger narrative cohesively. I think there's a reason that the the first Star Trek movie feels like it kind of emotionally peaks with George Kirk's death, because that's just such an immediately powerful scene to kick off on. There's a lot of great stuff after that, and I really like that movie, but it is very hard to follow that because it's it's just so immediately magnetic, and that's something that Abrams brings to his approach to what Wrath of Khan did in Star Trek Into Darkness, 
Um, but you know, we can we can talk about that later. But that is something that J.J. Abrams uses a lot. Is I'm going to immediately have a lot of emotional connection and resonance, and a lot of urgency in this scene. Uh, but then tying that to something else is kind of something that he hit, he's more hit or miss on, in, in my opinion. One of the things that works really well about Wrath of Khan, I think, is that there are basically – you have three basic motifs we're going for, revenge, aging, and friendship. And sort of everything ties back to one or more of those things. And, you know, it's – J.J. tries to do the same thing in his films, but it doesn't really have quite the connection, I think, that Khan did. Well, it's not going to have the connection to aging because they're they're a lot yeah. younger and they're at the, the beginning of their adventures rather than, uh, well, as they perceive it, moving towards the end. But I think for me, one of the um, the, the key elements of how the, that scene works in both movies is that um, it you can read it different ways depending on whose eyes you are seeing through. And for a lot of people, it will be a case of they identify more heavily with, with one character or the other, Kirk or Spock. And they they see that scene as being exemplary for that character. But you really can see it both ways. And if you, ca- if you kind of twist your head a little bit, you can see it both ways at the same time. So you've got in, in, the, in Wrath of Khan, is that scene about Spock's sacrifice or Kirk's loss? And in Into Darkness, it's the other way round. Oh, yeah. Okay, I can see that. That's, that's a good way of putting it. So uh, whose who's story do you see as being told in each one of those movies? Is that about, you know, who who is the, the primary protagonist in each version? Because I've, I've spoken to people who see that, who, who see it as Khan is about um, Kirk and Into Darkness is about Spock because they're focused on who is losing, who's the person who then has to deal with the grief. And I've seen people who've done it exactly the other way around because for them, that's those that scene in both cases is about who is making the sacrifice. New Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness are kind of both about Spock. He feels even more of a main character than Kirk does in a lot of sense uh, in those two movies, mm. at least to me. I- I think that uh, with Khan, it really does have to be about both of them and about their relationship. And you see that visually through a lot of it, where often when they're on screen, there's something visually that sets them apart, either physically, like the transparent aluminum or glass or whatever at the end. Or there's one shot that I love that has Kirk in red and Spock in blue. Or when Kirk visits Spock in his room, you start by seeing Kirk in the mirror behind Spock. And then when he walks forward, the background in that part of the room behind Kirk is different from the one behind Spock, even though they're in the same room. So it's sort of the intertwined nature of these two characters. And really the only time you get to see anything from Bones, who was the third part of that uh, group, that triumvirate, is when he gets to be a little um, snarky. Angry about Genesis. Angry about Genesis, but I was talking I was talking about snarky. There's a scene where they're about to go down to the planet... And Spock was says something like, "Be careful" or something along those lines. And Bones, who's actually going to the planet, we will, as if uh, he's my friend, not yours. <laughs> I'm the one that, who gets to go to the planet with him. You have to stay up here on the ship. Ha! Huh? It was it was a great delivery. I loved it. But, that the, like I'm in danger too, Jackass. Thanks. We will. <laughs> <laughs> one little tiny prop motif that I particularly like, which is a really 
just a very simple way of uh, emphasizing aging is uh, Kirk's spectacles. He gets, them, he gets them out at the beginning. He gets them out at the end during the submarine combat, which is, by the way, extremely tense and extremely uh, well executed throughout. You know, just a simple little prop to say, this Captain Kirk, who used to, you know, get his shirt ripped off and fight Gorns, um, is, is now getting on a bit. And uh, if you were there in the, in the, uh, for the original series, you're going to feel that. And if you weren't, then you're going to um, have to understand this is a movie about adults. I like that they sort of make him look a little doddering when he's pretending to find the information mm, on Genesis, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, then parodied in Galaxy Quest really well. <laughs> uh, and we're just going to, we're finding it right now. And it makes him look like he's a little bit infirm in how he's going to find this stuff. Like, of course, it's taking him longer than a minute to figure it all out. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing. He's senile now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether I interpret it wrong or whether he's in agree, mm-hmm. but in, in that scene as well, I think, if I recall correctly, he doesn't want to show Khan that he wears the glasses. He, he, I think he takes them off whenever he turns around to face Khan, as if that's a sign of weakness or, you know, ageing or something. It could just be my interpretation, but Amazing. that was the way I saw it. He kept putting them on when he was looking at the computer, then taking them off before oh he turned around. I had a totally different view of that, I because I, he wears the um, when he's reading, I assumed mm-hmm. that they were like just for reading. So he takes them off when he looks at Khan because otherwise Khan would be all blurry. Oh, I see. See, my glasses are, are for reading, but I can still, you know, I'd still keep them on if I was turning to someone. But yeah, it might, it might just be that. <laughs> might just be that. Or of course, it might just have rung alarm bells in Khan's brilliant head and had him saying, "Why are you now wearing reading glasses? What are you reading <laughs> on the screen?" <laughs> what are you not telling me. You know what? Photon torpedoes. <laughs> It could be just as simple as his faraway vision being clearer, because whenever he's reading without the glasses, he holds the book very far away, mm. and Khan on the view screen would be even further away than that. Mm. Either way, it's a really great way of uh, uh, outlining that this young, tight-skinned, handsome young hero is now prey to the uh, the ravages of age that we all eventually will be, and some of us most definitely already are. There is a lot of good visual business that goes on in, in these... Con- There's so much of Wrath of Khan that's just conversations. Even Khan and Kirk only ever just talk to each other. They never physically interact. But there's always something that's happening with visual storytelling that these people are doing. They're picking something up. They're, they're moving things around. They're showing you things with their bodies. There's a lot of business going on that I think works very well to, to visually tell where the characters are at and what they're thinking and what they're doing, what the movie's trying to tell you. Mm. Uh, you know, there was the remark about just Kirk's reaction to the Romulan ale. Uh, yeah. So there's there's not just people standing, you know, talking to each other or walking and talking to each other like there is in, say, the Star Wars prequels. There's none of that boringness going on. I adore the set of scenes uh, just before they head into the Matara Nebula, where it starts on the outside of the ships and then it cuts to... Um, uh, everybody running around, and then it cuts to the uh, torpedo loading, and you see them like pulling up the grating on the ground. And I mean, there's just so much going on in that scene mm. to kind of give us a just give us a sense that this is a working starship, that everybody's always on the move. Yeah. Um, one, <clears throat> I'd, I'd say it's not really necessarily a negative point of this film uh, until you go back to it, uh, but the fact that they didn't really even properly. I don't think they really revealed that David was actually Kirk's son, aside from uh, in uh, implications. 
throughout the uh, film. Is it, is it ever actually made absolutely concrete until he says, I'm proud to be your son? Yes, there's a yes. conversation he has with Carol Marcus. Yeah, yeah. and she's uh, just running after his And she his says, I, yeah, I, I didn't want him chasing across the universe like his father. His father. And I, I kind of like that it's only implied until they have that. It's not treated like a big reveal. They don't make yeah. a huge deal out of it. Well, no, that's what I mean. Like, it's it's not really stated explicitly, and at the end, it's like, yeah, if you thought that, then you were absolutely on the money. Rather than her saying, you know, blah 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 blah, this and that, and it kind of made me feel like because we'd not really explored that relationship between the two of them before, that I was missing out on a reel where we really got to know the two of them. But since they almost get rid of David just to make Kirk feel in um, uh, Search for Spock, yeah, D- David's death, you Klingon bastard. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's almost it's a total waste of, of this character bond which could have lasted a couple of movies if they were going to eventually kill David and the idea of the new generation dying and the old lingering is tragedy writ large so would it not have made more sense to uh, to focus on that but, yeah, yeah like yeah. I said I think I think they they just they were going to go in a very different direction mm. until after Wrath of Khan and decided to just sweep a lot of that under the rug, which is yeah. why Savick never comes back after three. Yeah. Well, she was going to come back in six, but Kim Cattrall didn't want to be the third actress to play Savick. So they <laughs> had a totally different character, but you know, even, even she was kind of uh, moved aside uh, even though she wasn't killed off. So it, it is very oh, so much you're saying that six, uh, that Kim Cattrall's character in six was going to be Savick. It, yeah, in early drafts, I believe that was the case. Although, it, it just doesn't really fit with the characters. I'm glad they changed that. But one interesting note... Oh, I did it again. Uh, Savick. It's it's a reflex. One trivial note, uh, once again. Uh, you know Savick's what? I, I, I've, I've said this before. When, when you say interesting, it's okay if you're going to lead into something. It's when asked, what did you think of this? It was... Oh. Interesting... That is the bit that I hate. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's using it as a sort of, a, I'm playing for time here. Maybe don't ask me to elaborate on this. Originally, at the end of three, going into four, Savick was supposed to be pregnant with Spock's child. Because of that scene? Because of the scene that happens mm-hmm. in Star Trek three. On fire. Which, by the way, throws the whole idea of Savick being uh, Spock's, like, mentee in uh, 2 into this really weird place. Yeah. I, I do like the actual the, the switch around there because, um, uh, I mean, and Sharon, you, you can probably uh, comment on this more, but the, the idea that she is his only link to, to anything resembling Vulcan. She's half Romulan, half Vulcan, but... Um, See, now, if we go into this too much, we're never going to do three, are we? I, I will I will very gladly do three at some point, but I... That's I mean, what she said. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, that, that's... I, I love the reversal, because mm. she's, she's his... I, know, I actually think it's a little bit of a shame that they, they didn't have the same actress for both films. Personally, I think they're both great. Kirstie Alley is lovely as, as the... the younger, more naive and frustrated Savick. Um, and I think the actress who plays her in three um, does a brilliant job in, in terms of the interaction with uh, David and with um, young, Spock. Uh, young Spock. Although she, she does seem to play her a lot more 
um, intellectual yeah. than um, than Kirstie Alley did. Kirstie Alley seems more human, slightly more human. That's um, the opposite of what I just said. I always I always found that the, the Savic Two was much more sort of emotionally in tune with Ah, I can see what you're going through right now. Whereas Savic her... in the second one's a bit more sort of I object, Captain. Well, you're not really uh, you don't really have a handle on the situation. So let me explain to you, kid. It doesn't really come across as a human way of understanding the emotions, though possibly it's got something to do with her Romulan heritage, because the, the, the way I kind of saw the, the Vulcan-Romulan divide is that if the Vulcans are the ones who kind of said, we, we don't want to feel any emotion, we're going to push it all down, we're going to invent rituals and processes that are going to help us to deal with that, the Romulans embraced it and were like full on, no, 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 rage is fine, we like rage, we can do passion, passion, bring it on. Um, so maybe that's that's part of the element of it. But I, the, the idea that in uh, Wrath of Khan she's his student, as you say, and in um, uh, Search for Spock she's more of a, not necessarily a maternal figure for him, but kind of a big sister. Mm. And that, that was how, although yes, there is that sexual element to the, the Pomfar process, that was how I saw that scene. And I don't think they're ever explicit about how far that went. <laughs> From the sounds of it, pretty far. Well, <laughs> pretty pond far. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I kind of, I never saw their relationship as really taking that turn. It might have something to do with the fact that I was quite young when I saw Search for Spock the first time, and it just didn't occur to me. But um, right. hey, I think they probably changed the trajectory as well. I know we touched on it earlier on, but uh, I think. Nemo, as we said, was going to leave it all behind. Mm. But he had so much fun on on Raffles Khan that he decided to stay. So obviously, I think then he's he, being the director as well for the next one. He's then putting his own imprint on it. So I think it probably, if it had been Nicholas Meyer stayed as the director and, and writer, mm. I think it probably maybe would have carried on in that sort of. Obviously, Savak would then be because I don't think, from what I recall. Meyer originally didn't want any of the stuff for Spock to come back. He thought it was cheapening, cheapening the moment and cheapening mm-hmm. what, what he'd worked towards. I think he now says he was wrong about that, but uh, obviously then obviously Savak would have had sort of more of the Spock role as, like, as you say, as his mentee from the second one. And obviously once Spock comes back, you've got to change your story somewhat, haven't you? It's kind of a reverse of Alien 3 where... Uh, um... David Fincher just straight up killed Newt and Hicks and uh, then Ripley and uh, James Cameron hates that film possibly more than any other film my god does he hate that film understandably um, yeah absolutely yeah. These, are, these are the characters that you've um, like you know like Ripley wasn't his to begin with but Hicks and Newt and Bishop uh, before I we love- move away from Savick uh, I, I do want to say that I've let me just say I've watched Wrath of Khan so many times. I absolutely adore this film. Uh, I, I think that Kirstie Alley's performance as Savick in, in Wrath of Khan is, I, I don't really want to call it understated, but I think it's very well handled. Mm-hmm. There are moments when she is this very precise, logical, almost robotic in her responses. But then there are other times when you can see her emotions slip through just for a split second when she gasps when uh, Peter Preston is brought onto the the bridge when he's dead at, or dying uh, later on in the film. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there are these moments where uh, that, that emotional part, the Romulan side of her, shines through just for a split second. When she was sobbing at Spock's funeral, which apparently was very, very controversial. Shatner didn't like it. 
Um, some of the other people on the set were, ah, Vulcans don't cry, and Nicholas Meyer's like, no, no, she's doing that. Let her do it. Let her sob. It's probably one of the, uh, the top five funerals in a movie. Anybody? <laughs> Just oh, the, yeah. Um, Shatner's, um, it's never even Kirk. <laughs> Shatner's eulogy for uh, Spock, as, as brief and as... Um, Intense it is, as it is, followed by Amazing Grace, and just the 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 bit where they toss Kane out into space in Aliens always creep me out. Just this sort of like firing a mummy off into the void, but in this they they send him down to the planet. It's um, literally into the sunrise. Yeah, there's almost like I mean, you know there's a, there's a shot at the beginning of New Star Trek where the, uh, um, uh, the shuttles are flying away from this giant like sun and it looks like sperm and a giant egg um as in that they're giving birth to this brand new universe uh but but here ultimately they're 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 sending down this seed which is then going to grow on the planet a space seed a space seed uh yeah no but but the um the amazing grace uh, coupled with that makes just everything feel very natural and very kind of circle of life about it so it's it's uh, an exhilarating and fulfilling send-off we are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead and yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow this death takes place in the shadow of new life the sunrise of a new world, a world that our beloved comrade gave his life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice a vain or empty one, and we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, this was the most human. Others. And I'm very glad that they didn't just abandon Spock because mm. Nimoy kind of took over the franchise for a couple of movies because he didn't just direct three and four. He also wrote them. And he's even got a story credit for Star Trek six. So there's a lot of Leonard Nimoy's fingerprints in mm. the movies going forward, as well as Spock still being around. Mm. So he, I think that it's probably for the best that Nicholas Meyer reassessed his opinion of Spock coming back because I, I think it does make for a stronger mm. series overall even with five being mm. not good uh, if you if you look at two three four and six it does make for a very complete sort of um, end 
we're aging gracefully until we send everything off and now we're done. Yeah. Also, the whole idea of Nimoy going, ah, I don't really want to do this anymore. Write me out of it. Uh, and then going, actually, no, this was really good. Uh, I kind of, you know, you've got me for as long as you want me. Uh, Sharon, you remind you of any particular actor right now? Particular favorite of yours? Was kind of uh, done with playing a superhero a few years ago and is now oh, totally back on board. Chris Evans. Absolutely. <laughs> now completely fine with being Captain America. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Brendan, Karu, Joe, and Aaron. Next time, Star Trek goes into darkness. Captain's log, Stardate 8141.6. Starship Enterprise departing for SETI Alpha 5 to pick up the crew of USS Reliant. All is well. And yet I can't help wondering about the friend I leave behind. There are always possibilities, Spock said. And if Genesis is indeed life from death, I must return to this place again. He's really not dead. As long as we remember it. It's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. A far better resting place I go to than I have ever known. Is that a bomb? Mm. Something Spark was trying to tell me on my birthday. You okay, Joe? How do you feel? Thank you.